Hi everyone, this is Dr. Tracy Jones. Welcome to the Tremendous Leadership Podcast. Leaders on Leadership, our guest today is Rachel Robertson. Rachel is the author of a best-selling book titled Leading on the Edge, which is an account of her leading a year-long scientific expedition to Antarctica. She is a world-renowned expert in leading under extreme circumstances. You're gonna love this interview. You're listening to Tremendous Leadership with Dr. Tracy Jones. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Tracy Jones. Welcome to the Tremendous Leadership Podcast, Leaders on Leadership, where we pull back the curtain on leadership and talk to tremendous leaders from all over the world on what it took them to pay the price of leadership. And today, I am so excited to welcome Rachel Robinson to our podcast. You're going to love her story and her perspective. Rachel is the author of the best-selling book, Leading on the Edge, which is an account of her leading a year-long expedition to Antarctica. Okay, she has delivered over 1500 keynote presentations remotely and in person around the world on topics of leadership and teamwork. Her latest book, and I want to hear all about this, Respect Trump's Harmony is out now. And talk about leading in extreme environments. Rachel, thank you so much for being our guest on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, I just got my PhD in leadership and I studied crisis leadership. So to hear, you know, see what's going on in the world, I'm like, hmm, so what I did study really is applicable. But then to bring somebody like you on, tell me about, first of all, tell our guests where you're from and also how you wound up leading an expedition to Antarctica for a year. Oh, it's extraordinary. Hey, so I'm, I'm now, as I'm speaking to you, I'm in Melbourne, in Australia, in the, in the bottom of Australia, the south. Uh, and it's uh, it's our winter here, so it's a chilly couple of degrees here. It's it's quite cold, um, but, and I should be used to the cold after a year in Antarctica, but I'm not. And look, I'd love to say going to Antarctica was this brilliant career move or a strategic move, but it wasn't. It was purely that I actually saw the job advertised in the newspaper. And so I'm just flicking through the newspaper and I saw a penguin and that's what caught my eye because that's a bit weird in the careers section. And when I looked at the advertisement, I noticed that they were recruiting for personal attributes. So things like resilience, empathy, integrity. And I just thought that was a, a brilliant way to recruit, right. that you recruit for, for the leadership qualities and you can teach the technical. So my brilliant plan was to just apply for the job until I got to the interview stage. So I could find out what the questions they were using and I, I, and I could copy those questions and bring them back to my role because I wanted to recruit for the same thing. So I never wanted this job. I just wanted to, to know how do you recruit for resilience and empathy? Mm. So I applied for the job. After I've applied, I find out they don't have a job interview. They actually have a week long boot camp. Mm -hmm. in the central highlands of Australia. So I end up in this boot camp myself and 13 men competing for this job. And then they rang and offered it to me. And I thought, you know what? I'd rather regret what I did than regret what I didn't right. do. And that's right. how I ended up there. It was purely an opportunity. And I thought, I'd rather do it and go, what have you done? Than not do it and spend the rest of my life looking back going, oh, what would have happened if I'd done that expedition? So it was just an opportunity that, that came my way. I love, well, I'm like you. I would rather, I can handle failure. I can't handle regret. You know, and so, yes. so like me going in the military, I never thought I would, but I thought, well, I'll apply and I'll show up. And because 
better to go and find out it's not for me than to wonder all my life. Okay, so what did you do at the boot camp? Did you find out then? I mean, I know people go down to Antarctica, primarily are researchers, right? And and yes. or correct me if I. But so is that what you were part of? Were you sponsored by somebody? Were you were you collecting data on something, or what were you doing there? So the thing that fascinated me the most, and you'll you'll appreciate this with your experience and background that. I, and I, I didn't I didn't get this until I got the job that leadership skills and capability can cross over any industry mm -hmm. or sector. Mm -hmm. And so I went in applying for the job thinking I know nothing about Antarctic research or science. I did not I didn't even know there was a science called glaciology. I had never heard of oh, glaciology. Okay. So I thought they're never going to employ me. I was also managing a team of tradespeople. So we do any construction work mm -hmm. in Antarctica. And it's the same with the United States Antarctic program. All the nations are the same. We can only do construction work in summer. And summer's, you know, a balmy, uh, probably 10 degrees uh, Celsius. So it's not warm at all. But I thought, well, there's no way I'll get this job because I know nothing about construction or I've never worked with diesel mechanics or carpenters. I know nothing about science. What I now realise in hindsight is leadership is transferable. Those skills were mm -hmm. transferable. And so I'm not managing a science program, I'm managing people. And so I, I sort of had to know enough about the research to make decisions around resourcing. Mm -hmm. But my main job as the leader was to manage the people. And in summer, we had 120 people on the station, which is, that's quite a small station. The American station has up to 1000 people over summer. So okay. 120 is quite small. And then they go home in February and then a little group of 18 of us remain behind and we're there purely to maintain the station to keep it running until the next summer. So it's a real, my role is really different in summer. It's busy. There's 24 hours of daylight. It's fun. It's exciting. There's things happening winter, which is nine months. It's dark 24 hours a day. It's cold. We can't go outside. We're stuck with each other. We can't, you can't come home ever under any circumstances. We can't get out. Mm -hmm. So you're stuck there. So my role then becomes a lot more around leading morale and, and teamwork and building a culture where we can speak up and deal with issues. So it's quite a fascinating role in summer and winter, but completely by accident. You know, it was oh my a complete God. accident. <laughs> How many people were there in the winter? I know you said it's 120, the max capacity that you had in the summer when it was most active. That's it. Yeah. And then 18 of us. So and my, myself 18. and seven, 17 others. Yeah. And, and did they, did they only, was it like the military, you do like a one year remote tour and then you have to go home or could you come back after you went home? I mean, this fascinates me. It's fascinating because Australia and I believe the US are the, are the same because of mental health considerations. Uh -huh. um, we do one year terms a one year stint and then you come back and you you must have some time home right but there's other other nations like china and russia where they can sometimes do two or three years on mm -hmm. the ice which i think you know is extraordinary they're also quite different their backgrounds i remember i was talking to the russian and chinese station leaders and they were defense backgrounds so mostly um submarines they were submariners because they were used to that confinement sure. So they were, they were gobsmacked that they'd met me. A, I was a female and they'd never met a female station leader. Uh, and I was young, I was 35 years old. And also that I didn't have any kind of background in that. I, you know, I had a corporate background. And so that was quite, you know, I was managing a call center. So that was quite extraordinary. That, and they were quite amused that, that I'd come from this completely different background and I was this young, you know, tertiary educated female. I was quite opposite to them. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it's really, it's a fascinating place. It really is. 
Well, I love that you said, and this is a great point for our leaders listening, um, leadership skills are transferable. I know when I got out of the military, I thought, who's going to have me run their flight line and their fighter jets? No private people have flight. But it doesn't matter. And I went into semiconductor. I went into defense contracting. I went into publishing. I went... It doesn't, leadership, no, and I lived all over the world. I love that you said that, 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 that if you can work with people and stay on budget and on time, on schedule, the world is your oyster. You can, you can do whatever you, you absolutely want. So you said like one of my all-time favorite words, resiliency and trust. I'm not sure which I love better. I love them, but I don't think, I love them both. But how, what did they ask? How did they, because this is the other question leaders always ask me, um, no matter how good of a leader you are, if you don't hire the right people, it doesn't matter. So what did this, well, when they brought you through the process that you wanted to get the insider trading info on what they asked <laughs> you, what did they ask you? How did they get somebody like you versus somebody that obviously looked more qualified on, on paper? How, yes, how did and, and I asked the same question. I said, there were obviously people who wanted the job a hell of a lot more than I did. And I said, why did you pick me? And they said, well, because we, we believe in your leadership philosophy and my, my philosophy is that leadership is about creating more leaders it's not mm. about creating more followers and I think if you try particularly with your gen y and gen z cohort if you charge out the front and say follow me they, they just won't so I think leadership now is about contemporary leadership is about creating more leaders in the boot camp what they do to test for resilience and empathy is actually mm -hmm. put you in a situation where you need to de demonstrate it so the boot camp, we start at seven o'clock in the morning and we work until 11 o'clock at night. You're living in it. You're sharing a little cabin with three other people. You're sharing a bathroom. You've got no privacy. You're under mm -hmm. intense pressure, physical, physical pressure. We do a lot of physical work. Mm -hmm. Then there's a lot of, you do public speaking. You do a lot of written assessments. Like it's constant assessment with the panel around the room watching you. And so you need to, dem you need to be resilient. In terms of empathy, they had one exercise where we needed to choose which value was the most important to us and then stand up and convince the other 13 applicants, <clears throat> excuse me, why your value was more important than theirs. And there were things like empathy, innovation, hardworking, loyalty, and you had to convince the others. Now, straight away, I thought, I actually don't have that right to, to convince you. If you've picked loyalty, then I have no right to tell you that you're wrong, mm -hmm. that, that, that your value is wrong. That's your value. That's your conviction. So, yeah, that's your spot on. Yeah. Spot on. So mm -hmm. I stood up and said, look, I've picked integrity for this reason. I respect that you've picked loyalty. However, for me, integrity is number one for this reason. However, some of the other applicants took it to the extreme and got very aggressive and said, you know, you can't say loyalty is number one. That's ridiculous. And that was the moment the penny dropped for me. I had this, this moment where I went, that's how you recruit for resilience. You put them in the situation. So it was never about values. It was about having the empathy and the integrity to say, I believe this. However, I respect that you believe that and, and demonstrating that empathy. And I'm like, wow. So that's how you do it. And, and I think for leaders listening now who can't, afford to get everyone together for a boot camp or haven't got the opportunity I think what what you can do is most jobs have a um a, a sort of period at the first two or three months where you're in probation or you're on mm -hmm. it's a trial period mm -hmm. and if you don't work out you can you can let them go then and there mm -hmm. without any kind of issue 
that's the time where you need to turn up the heat, where you need to test them for resilience and for empathy. And we don't tend to do that. We tend to be lovely and we tend to show them where the best coffee is and, and where to go for lunch and we're lovely. And then six months down the track, we find out this person has no resilience. They're in a sales oh my environment gosh. and they're crying all the time. They can't cope with it. Mm -hmm. And we should have known that two months in. So we could have said to them, you're not a good fit. So what I say to leaders is use that probationary period wisely and, and actually test them for whatever the quality is that you need. Test them then and there. I love that. And you know, there's that simple little 10 question questionnaire, the SES self-efficacy scale, where you just ask them, you know, it's your resiliency, it's your confidence, it's your adaptive capacity. If something goes wrong or you get pushback, are you going to, will? you know, are you an orchid or are you a dandelion? You know, can you exist in Antarctica or the minute somebody opens the door, are you going to, you know, you know, wither up, wither up and freeze. That is wild. Oh my goodness. So that's how they did that. And so as you're watching this, um, they, they viewed it more as a competition. I think sometimes as leadership, we get in this sword fighting thing, but that, that's not what they were looking for because they were looking at leaders competing against leaders. But what they were really hiring for was leadership, which is nothing about the leader, but how you bring, what you bring out in other people in the team. Absolutely. I mean, even one of the activities, we had to be a mentor to, to someone who we were, we were competing with. And that's an extraordinary situation to find yourself wow. in where I'm mentoring you and I might notice something in your behavior or your, the way you behave, your, your acting or your response where I think I, as a mentor, as a leader, I, I will let you know that. But then the other half of you is thinking, well, I'm competing against Tracy. So maybe right. I'll let her, I'll let her go on and keep doing that because it looks better for me. <laughs> and, and so that's absolutely what they're doing is looking for leadership behavior. And so things like dealing with conflict and all of you, you tested for all of that stuff because they can't help you once you're down there, you're on your own. So oh they really need to make sure they've got the right person. And because of the nature of the role, because the nature of the community down there, the leader can't leave. It's critical that the leader is the right person because they set the tone and they create the culture down there. So if you get the wrong leader, which has happened, if you get the wrong person in, it's very difficult. It's an, an horrible year for everybody concerned. And so you're absolutely correct. They, they recruit for the leadership behavior and they look for people who can demonstrate that kind of behavior. And it's, yeah, you sort of, you, you forget about that. After a few days, you completely forget that the panel is sitting there taking notes on and watching you and you revert to what your natural type is because you okay. can't pretend. You right. just can't pretend. Yeah. Well, they always say when you're under pressure, what's inside you comes out when you get squeezed, that's it. you know? And so that's why, you know, it's, it's beneath the surface. So, I mean, that's fascinating that the team saw this because everybody says, Oh, we hire for character. Nobody ever does it. Well, very few people do it, which is why we have such a horrific turnover. But did you get to have input into any of your followers to see if people resonated with your leadership style? Um, or did you, how did you, how did you mesh that? I mean, cause you could be the greatest leader in the world, but did did they put the, the um, participants or your co-leaders or team members through the same test too to make sure that they had that intrinsic resiliency too? Did everybody go through this vetting process? It, it, it's an extraordinary process in that I had no input whatsoever to my okay. team, which, which blew me away. I, I thought that I would have some kind of input or say in who would be on my expedition team, but no, I just got given 17 people and told, make it work. Uh, 17 random individuals, turn them into a team. By the way, your life depends on your teamwork. Yeah. Knock yourself out. And the, the trades team, it's really fascinating. The trades team, so the electricians, plumbers, carpenters, they have a 24-hour selection centre. And 
what we do there, we're worried about alcohol. We're worried about people drinking. Mm -hmm. We're worried about um, misogynists and racists. So we bring them all together and we try to get them relaxed so that we can see their true self. And it happens every time. Every time mm -hmm. someone will have a couple of drinks, a couple of alcoholic drinks, their guard goes down and you see the real person. And, and the reason we do that is we can't manage that behaviour or that performance in Antarctica. I can't give you a letter of warning. I can't sack you. I can't send you home. So we need to weed those people out. We need to get them out before we go to Antarctica. So they have a 24-hour selection process. That The difficult thing is with the scientists because the scientist is such a specialised skill and there's parts, there's equipment down there that I at a guess, there's one thing called a light imaging, detecting and ranging system. And at a guess, there's probably about 12 or 13 people on this planet who can operate that mm -hmm. equipment. So you kind of have to, you're, you're a bit more, you're stuck with, with the scientists. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is um, about, we have a, a no, it's called a no idiot policy. We don't want idiots. We don't want people who are hard work. So about... 50% of the selection criteria for the, the trades team is your technical ability. You need to be top of your game. We, we don't have um, you know, a hardware shop that you can go to for spare parts. So you have to be the best of the best. But you could be the best tradesperson in the entire country. If you're hard to live with, we don't want you. So it's equally weighted that the number one thing we look for in our trades team and, and the rest of the expedition team is self-awareness. Mm -hmm. And the ability to know how you affect other people and the ability to know when other people are affecting you, mm -hmm. uh, you and you need to remove yourself. You need to, mm -hmm. you need to feel, okay, I'm getting a bit agitated here or a bit anxious. I need to remove myself from the situation. So that's what we look for in the expedition team members. That, that self-awareness is really important. Oh, fast. Well, and you know, I, I, I know there's a lot of traits of EQ, but in my mind, and we always have this discussion of a, is self-awareness or self-discipline the best, the most important EQ trait? And it's like, but if you aren't aware, you can't discipline yourself. So, I mean, yeah. self-awareness, the sun rises and sets. Even oh. when, we're going to talk about you building trust. You know, if you've broken trust, you got to at least be self-aware enough to own your part of it. And that's why trust never, organizations get fragmented and never get restored. Because Absolutely. people refuse or at a, either either willfully ignorant or woefully ignorant. Who knows, you know, which one it is. So, oh, all right. Well, w let's get talking. I want to hear your leadership lessons as they, as they, cause you paid yeah. a serious price. Hey, are you ever going to go back? And, did you just do this one year? <laughs> I, I did. And I think a lot of people listening will, will understand this. I did one year. I was invited back, but I wouldn't do it again. And it wasn't because I didn't love it. I mean, there were times that were horrible and I mm -hmm. just wanted to come home. But mm -hmm. overall, I loved it. It changed my life. The reason I wouldn't do it again is because the leadership scrutiny that you're under is just intense. And I think every leader, particularly if you're at the moment uh, running a team, so if you're a business owner, for example, and, and people's mortgages depend on you employing them and, and depend on you know, you run, keeping the business together or you're, or you're managing a big team in a corporate or wherever, even in a volunteer group when you're the leader, people are looking to you right now for, for support and optimism. And I had to do that, but I had to do it 24 hours a day, every day for a year. There was not one second where I could take off the leadership hat and say, you know what, 
I'm not going to be the leader today. I'm just going to sit back and read a book because no matter where I went or what I did, there were people knocking on my bedroom door or coming up to me while I was having, trying to have lunch. And I had to manage that boundary. I learned the hard way, but I can talk about that later. I learned the hard way that I, it was up to me to manage that particular boundary. Mm -hmm. But it, the scrutiny, like, honestly, I would, I would have a sleep in a lie in on a Sunday morning. We don't work 10, typically we don't work on a Sunday morning. So I might sleep in until nine o'clock and I'd come downstairs for breakfast and the whole community would comment and say, Oh boss, you know, you had a sleep in and I'm like, Oh, just <laughs> pretend I'm not here. just pretend I'm not here. Even so much that one time, I think it was in March and I'd forgotten about this, but I actually got a sore throat and the doctor diagnosed, it was tonsillitis. So just a bit of penicillin. I was fine in a few days. But the entire community made me a get well card and, and brought food to my room. And it was like, oh my gosh, you know, so that kind of scrutiny and being watched where I sat for meals, who I sat next to, I yes. couldn't have friends, I couldn't have favourites. So that whole scrutiny I was under. And even when I wasn't feeling it myself, when I was homesick and I was feeling a bit vulnerable, I needed to be acutely aware of that because they would pick up on that vibe that I was, I was down or I was a bit flat. So I had to take myself away until I could get myself back up again. And so the 24 hour a day nature with not a single hour off, it's just exhausting. It's exhausting. Right. Well, but, and you know what, let other people have the opportunity to go play that role. You know what I'm saying? Because what an incredible thing. It's, it's like, it's like going to war when we got called up for the first Gulf war and just went away and 24 yeah. seven. And, you know, I mean, but that was an incredible experience. And, and the more people that can experience this, they really understand leadership. So you were, what you were talking about, that kind of everybody's looking at you and you are different, you know, fraternization, you're here, they're here. Talk to me about loneliness. My dad said, Hey, when you're a leader, yeah, you want people to support you and care for you, but um, there's an implicit loneliness that a leader wears when they put on the mantle of leadership. Can you share with me what that meant to you in this environment? And even back, um, back in normalcy, wh what would you encourage for other leaders going through this? Because it is a fact of leadership, loneliness. Isn't it? And I'm, I'm thrilled that you're so across that because I talk to young leaders and particularly young leaders in that first leadership role. So when they've gone from being one of the team and that very first leadership role and they think, oh, I'm still one of the guys, uh, I'm still one of the team and I have to say no, no. And they think, oh, no, I haven't changed, nothing's changed, everything has changed, everything has changed because as soon as you're in a leadership role, everything you say has extra volume. It's that leadership shadow that you cast that everything you say has extra volume. There's no off the cuff comments. You right. can't just make an off the cuff comment. It gets repeated and it gets taken as fact because of your, your role. You're the leader. Mm -hmm. And so with the loneliness stuff, and I, I, I raise it with young leaders. I say it is lonely. Leadership is lonely and you need to be aware of that. And you need to think about how you will handle that. And for me, it was a couple of things. One of the things that really helped me was I spoke, I, I was the second woman to lead a team at Davis station, which is my station. I um, had dinner with the first woman and I asked her that same question. I said, how did you look after yourself and, and avoid that loneliness? And she said to me, oh, well, I kept a journal. I kept a diary and okay. I'm like, oh, wow. Who's got time for that? And then I thought, you know what? She knows what she's talking about. She's done yeah. this. So I trusted that. I trusted her experience and I kept this journal and it wasn't, I, I didn't realize it would ever become a book. I wrote it more for, um, to get the emotion out because I, I would write, it wasn't dear diary today. We went and photographed penguins. It was, <laughs> this person is driving me crazy. And it just meant I slept better. So it came back to that resilience. I got the emotion out. I slept better. 
But in terms of the loneliness, the only thing I had to keep me from being lonely was my friendship with one of the other station leaders. He was about oh, 600 miles away from me. So he was a long way away from me. I could never see him, but I could pick up the phone. He was one of the other Australian leaders. So we have three stations down there. He was down at one of the other stations. I could pick up the phone and talk to him. And I would talk to him and I would say, oh, his name was Graham. I'd say, Graham, they're fighting about who put the milk jug back into the refrigerator without milk in it. And he'd say, oh, mate, we had that fight last week. This week, they're fighting about who made up the orange juice concentrate incorrectly. And it was such a relief to think, well, it's not my leadership. It's human nature in this environment. So that, that peer support is yes. what stopped me from being lonely. If I didn't have that, I don't know where I would be today. Like, because I couldn't talk to anyone on station. I had no friends. I couldn't be friends with one and not another. So I either had to be oh, friends gosh, with yeah. all of them or none of them. So having a peer who knew what I was going through and hand on heart, he was the only person on the planet who knew what I was going through because uh -huh. I was going through the same thing. So just having just one person who gets it, who understands it, who you can talk to is the, the one most, most powerful and important tool I had. To, and I have it to this day to stop the loneliness because someone gets it, they get mm -hmm. it. Uh, uh, fantastic. Okay. So loneliness now talk about, and I love how you talked about the leadership shadow and how, yeah, e even after you walk out of a room, the, the wake of what you said or did, or just being there, they're still talking about it. Well, she said, you know, the boss said this or whatever. And it's like, you just gotta, you gotta own that. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I love yeah. how you said that. Yeah. And I love yeah. the peer support. You need that one, you know, that one patron, that one advocate, that one person in your, even, and I tell people, even if it's just one, uh, 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 two or three is great, but you ju just gotta have just one. one. Just yeah. one. Yeah. You, you have to have at least one. And if you don't have one, one will be brought to you or you'll move into a place where you'll, you'll find one, but nobody can do it alone. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love how you, you also brought up, you really can't share with the troops when you're down. I mean, you want to show that you're a human being, but not that human, you know, cause they don't need to hear or see that side of it kind of thing. It's really difficult. And when you're in a crisis, so <clears throat> we had a, we had a plane crash. We had a, um, uh, a bolt sheared off the landing gear and it stranded four of my people 300 miles away and wow. I had to manage this search and rescue for these people or potentially they would die and so in my head my head was oh my goodness I don't know what to do here I have never led a search and rescue let alone in Antarctica but if I had gone out to the team so this happened in summer when I had 120 people on the station if I went out to the team and they said, what's happening? What's going on? And I said, well, how would I, I don't know. I've never done this before. Yeah. It doesn't instill confidence. So even my body language, I had to be really poised and calm and, and I had to instill confidence. I had, and I had to choose my words carefully. So I had to say, I have concerns for these people because if I had said, I'm really worried, I'm worried about these people. Worry is a different word to concern when the leader says it. So I had to say, I'm really concerned about these people. I'm confident we'll get them back. And we did after five days. But gee, it taught me a lot about how people look to the leader and they pick up your cues. So as you're saying, if, if you come in frazzled or you come in panicking, they'll, they'll pick up on that. But if you come in poised and calm, even if you're not feeling it, if you come in poised and calm and say, look, we're trained for this, which we were, we're trained for this, we'll, we'll get them back. We're talking to them on the satellite phone. They're okay. Uh, they've got 10 days worth of food on board. They'll be fine. Okay. So that instilled the confidence in the rest of the community that they sort of thought, okay, well, we, we've got this in hand. That's okay. But mm -hmm. gosh, inside my head, my head was like, I have no idea. I have no, and I really am out of my depth, but 
I was the leader. So the buck stopped with me. I had it, to it pull does. my socks up and get in there. And, and one other thing, so it was you and then the the technicians the workers your team members so you had no intermediary like second in command right hand man or woman you know what i'm saying like it was you and kind of the workforce correct i had one i had a and that was the only selection choice i made i a deputy had, kind of thing? had to choose a deputy okay i got to choose my deputy and that was interesting i i got advice from my mentor and i took it that i picked the exact opposite to me so as a young nice. woman who was tertiary educated i chose an older man who was on the tools so he was uh, an electrician we had nothing in common because he was probably 20 years older than me so mm -hmm. taste in music uh, films we, we had nothing in common but i deliberately chose him as opposed to someone who was my generation and we had lots of fun together and we got along really well because I needed to have that contrast. I needed the team to know if there's something it. they're not, not comfortable talking to me about, they might feel more comfortable talking to Howard about this. So Howard was my deputy and it was the best decision I ever made because he was so loyal. He was loyal to me. His judgment oh. in, in what to raise to me versus what to sort out himself was brilliant. Never once did something happen where I had to say, look, I, I needed to know about that. Never once. So, and I wouldn't have done it except that a mentor had said to me, if you pick someone similar to you, it's same old, same old, you need some diversity. So pick someone the opposite. And it was, I, I, it. I, never, I never would have done it, but now I tell people, do it, <laughs> do well, it, I surround yourself with people who are different. Yeah, well, thank you. And I'm glad I'm glad I pushed into that because, you know, a lot of times we're like, well, we, we have at least that one person on our team who really gets us, but you're, you're talking, but still you didn't, you didn't, you relied on him for certain things, but you still had really great boundaries. And you didn't you couldn't it. call yeah. him and say, can you believe Joe's complaining about the orange juice? None of that. Because that's no. just gossiping about your co-team members. And, and that's, I bring that up because I know I as a leader have been guilty of that. You know, we as leaders, sometimes we get our core group and then we kind of, all huddle and talk about the workers and it's like, that's not cool either. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, There's absolutely. Nothing, well, that, nothing healthy about that. It's the number one the number one tool I use to keep me resilient and the team resilient is a, is a tool called no triangles and no triangles simply means I don't speak to you about Tracy. If I have something to say about Tracy, I go directly to Tracy and it changed my life because the team would come to me doing that whinging, that complaining, Oh, did you hear what he did? And I would say, would you like me to speak to him? Is that why you're telling me? And they said, no, I'm just letting you know. And I was exhausted. I was so exhausted from these conversations. And I'd sit there and think, I need to go and see my good people and tell them you're doing great because we all know you need to keep your, your great people. If you want to retain your talent, you need to let them know you're doing great. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the energy. I was so tired and so burnt out from these conversations constantly. And so I, I said, one time the person said to me, they were complaining and I said, I said it out loud. I said, but if you don't speak to him and I don't speak to him, he's never going to know. Mm -hmm. So you and I will have this conversation next week. And then in my head, I've gone, oh my God, I'm here for 52 weeks. I'll have this conversation 52 times. And that's right. just one of them. There's 17 of them. So I said, let's do this no triangle. So I got the whole team together and I said, right, let's try and build a bit of trust in this team, a bit of respect. Let's have direct conversations. Let's have no triangles. Put your hand up if you agree. So everyone's hand went up. It meant the next time someone came to me and tried to do that gossiping, oh, blah, 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 I could say, hang on, hang on. I saw you put your hand up and you committed to no triangles. So why are you talking to me about it? Why aren't you talking to him about it? And honestly, it, it's 
it's saved my sanity. We've done research on this, which is the second book I've just released. We've gone back to 200 teams across private sector, public sector, schools, hospitals, defence, uh, volunteer groups, and I wanted to quantify no triangles. So these are 200 teams that have already implemented no triangles, uh-huh. and 100% of them said no triangles builds respect and it yeah. builds, it improves morale. The other fascinating thing, 89% of them said it frees up my time and energy and in a third of cases, up to one hour a day. And I think, wow, imagine an extra hour a day that you're not spent listening to these gossiping, moaning conversations that go nowhere. And so part of my own resilience and keeping myself strong was creating a culture where the team would talk to each other. And honestly, I wish I had done this 30 years ago when I started out in the workforce. It changed my life. So simple. I mean, that's, and, and Dave Ramsey, I think he, I heard this from him. He's going to be on a later podcast, big, big money guy in the States, but okay. he had that too. And I think it wasn't his organization. It may not be his, but he said, if you were caught doing that, or you did that, you weren't part of the team anymore. It was, they realized it was so damaging. Yes. They'd say, go talk to somebody else, but you know, some people just have a real hard time with this and, and it just, it really infects the team. And it's just, I just love, I, I never heard it called no, no triangle, but I love that. That is conflict resolution 101. Go, go right to the person and have a discussion with them. Now you talked about how that, um, saves on the adult babysitting leadership gets a bad rap because people are like, well, I don't want to babysit adults because otherwise you listen to them just grouse about each other all the time. So the second price is weariness and you already hit on how you really, um, you know, partition that up. Talk to me about just weariness though. I mean, not being able to see the sun, um, you know, you lose sense of all time. How did you stay physically, um, uh, physiologically in the game there? and that you know in that part of the world I learned that the hard way um that was what I was thinking about earlier I thought that to be a good leader meant if my people need me I'm there it's Mm -hmm. that simple if you need me I'm there so they would knock on my bedroom door at 10 o'clock at night Mm -hmm. they'd see the light shining under the door and I'd, I'd call out yeah and they'd open the door and they'd say oh you're reading you're reading your book and I'd say it's okay I'll put a jacket on I'll come outside that's fine and after six weeks, I thought, I can't do this. Mm. I, I can't be available to you people 24 hours a day for a year. It will absolutely destroy me. Mm-hmm. So the next time it happened, they interrupted my breakfast to get me to sign. It was a permission slip to let them go and photograph penguins or something. And I looked at it and I said, guys, this isn't urgent and I need to have my breakfast. How about I have my breakfast and I'll meet you in my office. I'll let's say in 15 minutes. How does that sound? Once I put the boundary there, they respected it. But prior to that, I had no boundary. So they would come to me all the time and I would respond. Yeah. And I talk to people now. It's that whole thing around when you're, and I think that's why a lot of us are loving working at home at the moment. But when you're in an office environment and people say, oh, Tracy, have you got a minute? Have you got a minute? And it's never a minute. That constant interruption, have you got a minute? And we're too afraid to say, actually, no, I don't right now. And I've learned the hard way. You need to manage that. If you don't have time, you need to say, look, I'm on a deadline for this. I need to get this report to the the board or the chief executive by three o'clock. Can you come back at 3.15? Because if you say, sure, that person thinks, sure, you've got time. You need to Mm -hmm. say, not now. I'm not saying no, I'm saying not now. So part of the weariness was, it was two things. It was that managing my own boundaries so that the team wouldn't come to me all the time. And they knew that when I was in my bedroom, that's my private place, my private space, unless it's urgent, please don't disturb me because I need that mental respite. I need that break from, from leading you guys. I need some time off. 
and the other thing was devolving leadership. So having the no triangles, but he's equally saying to the team, I expect you all to demonstrate leadership. It's a behavior, it's not a title. So I didn't feel this overwhelming, I'm the font of all knowledge or I'm the leader, I make every decision. I made the important decisions, but I said to the team, I expect you all to demonstrate leadership. If you've got a great idea, I wanna hear it. Or if you see something that needs to be done, you do something about it, that's leadership. And so I had to get really strategic around that weariness because I, I picked it up six weeks in that this is mm -hmm. not sustainable for a year. I, I cannot do this for 12 months because I won't have anything left in the tank. Mm -hmm. And it's like the, um, when we, the old days when we used to fly on aeroplanes <laughs> and the, uh, the cabin crew do the emergency presentation and they say, put the oxygen mask on yourself before mm -hmm. you help those people around you. And that's leadership. Like if I wasn't looking after myself, if I wasn't putting the oxygen mask on myself, I had no way of helping the people around me. And I learned that the hard way that, it was only after I started to feel burnt out that I thought, wow, I actually need to do something here and, and make a few decisions and put in a few tools and structures to support myself. And only I can do that. No one would tap me on the shoulder and tell me to do that. I had to do that myself Absolutely. as every leader does. Yeah. I, I love that. And for the leaders listening out there, I mean, what, what, what you hit on was, is the self-regulating teams. And that is the highest functioning of a team. You know, when they're able to, you know, yes, you're there, leaders are needed, but so are autonomous, highly functioning, highly critical thinking teams, because you're there in the event of, but they should be able to really self-regulate and do a lot of that. And I had to be explicit about that, which really right. intrigued me, right. you know, because I've, I've worked in the leadership space like you have for a long time. So for me, it was kind of second nature that, that you need, I need the team to show leadership. You know, right. if you want innovation, if you want some creative ideas, you need everyone to speak up and contribute. Whereas I was working with a lot of trades men, um, there was one, was one woman, so one tradeswoman, the rest were trades men who'd never had any kind of leadership training or teamwork training or any kind of corporate training whatsoever. They, they left school at the age of 13 or 14 and did an apprenticeship and, mm -hmm. and very successful business owners. They run their own businesses, but never had any formal leadership training. So had never heard that idea that leadership is a behavior. It's not mm -hmm. a title mm -hmm. and it's an attitude. It's not a title. Just because you have the, lead, the word leader in your title doesn't make you a leader. Right. But I had to say those words because it was quite new for them that they had never heard that. And I had to actually speak those words and say, that's my expectation. And I, ex I expect all of you, if you see something broken, do something about it. If something needs it. fixing, do it, fix it, do something about it. That's but beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And for the leaders, if you are really tired and run down, be clear on the expectation. It's like even in marriage, if you're upset with your spouse because you feel like they're not doing something, be clear in your expectation about, you know, what, if you, if you need the gift of helps, be clear that we're not mind readers, be clear in where you expect the boundaries. And like, like you pointed out, Rachel, they will respect that, but all they need yes. to know is where, what, what, what was the lines of uh, demarcation that I need to follow in? You know what I'm saying? But if we exactly. don't say it, they're not mind readers. They can't, they don't know what's, what's going on. It's the same. I hear people all the time saying, um, you know, the boss will ring me at night, particularly sales teams are sort of out and about in their, their territories. And they say, oh, the boss rings my phone at 9.30 at night and it's not urgent. And I say, well, do you answer the phone? And they say, yeah. And I say, well, there you go. You know, like you, you need to put the boundary there. They're not mind readers. So if right. you're always available and you're always responding to emails at home within 15 minutes or you're answering the phone every time someone calls you, the expectation right. is you're fine with it because if you weren't fine with it, you'd say something. And so right. they're not, you're right, you're spot on. They're not mind readers. 
And, and yeah. that may be, you may be okay with that. My dad would sleep three hours a night. And so he would pick up the phone at two and five and whatever in the morning. And people would be like, Charlie. And he's like, and he did that because that, that he loved that, but not all of us can run. Not all of us can are coded that way. So That's if it. you like to do it, do it. And your boss may think you like to do it. Like you said, because you keep responding, but just do them the, the favor of letting them know, Hey, you know, I'm turning the phone off at this. And my co-leader Leah did that because she knows I'll answer the phone. I don't care if it's one or two in the morning. So she shuts off the work that gets channeled up my cell phone, blocks it off. It doesn't come on after work hours. And I'm like, oh, and she's like, you need to not be answering phone calls. And I'm like, okay. And I'm really glad she did, you know, because I would jump up in the middle of the night and get up, you know, I'm just used to that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the next one is thank you for sharing your insights on uh, weariness. Okay. The next one is abandonment. And my dad uh, always called abandonment. Um, we need to stop thinking about what we like and want to think about in favor of what we need and ought to think about. Now you got this really hyper-focused crystallized because of the context that you were in. But I'm sure even in that environment where everybody's so all in and so confined, how did you keep everybody focused and on point? Maybe there were different people that wanted to try different things or, or did any of that happen? Yeah, it really was. And that's where the idea that respect trumps harmony came from. So okay. we, we had a lot of conflict that I didn't expect. So things like uh, the, the reason for why people work in Antarctica and there's three broad groups and it's the same for all of the 17 countries or nations that have teams there there's a group that will go there like I did for the experience I mean what an amazing experience very few people ever get to live in Antarctica a lot of people will visit as a tourist but they will never get to live there particularly in winter and they'll never see the um, the southern lights the aurora australis the beautiful lights in the sky and so for me it was the experience there's a cohort that will go to, to get away they're in a situation that they want to get out of whether it's a family or a life situation or a relationship and they're not sure how to get out. So they go, mm -hmm. it's similar, I guess, to the defense. A lot of people will join the defense because it's a better option. It sounds like the military. Got. Yeah. See the world, yeah. get out of jail. Yep. <laughs> spot on. That's it. Here's, a, here's an opportunity. And then, and then that's the second group. And the third group are there for the money because it, it's a well-paid job. It needs to be well-paid. Otherwise people wouldn't do it. If they right. paid you um, peanuts, no one would do it. And it caused a lot of conflict. So the people who were there for the, the experience would say, I can't believe those people have not even left the station once. They haven't photographed any of the wildlife. They've got no interest in Antarctica. Why are they here? And they, they're there for the money because you can make a six-figure sum and you'll bank it, you'll save it because you've got no outgoing expenses. Right. Everything's paid for. So if you want to save a lump sum of money for a deposit for a house, it's a fast way to save mm -hmm. money. It's not easy, it's fast. Uh, and that caused conflict. So I had to, to chime in and say, it doesn't matter. Um, respect Trump's harmony. You don't need to agree with why they are here. You just need to respect that that's their choice. Just respect that that's their choice. They're entitled to do that. Mm -hmm. And I, honestly, I, I never predicted that would be a challenge for me. So keeping the team on song and, and keeping them all, because we're there for Antarctic science. So our overarching expedition goal is Antarctic science. So everything we do 
is contributing to the science. But I had to find a way, well, how do I explain that to the plumber who, who's, we, we make the water through reverse osmosis. So we take all the salt out from the salt water and that's our drinking water and that's their job. So how do I, how do I connect them to this higher purpose of this lofty goal around climate change science and mm -hmm. um, geology and seismology when they make the drinking water mm -hmm. but I had to find a way to connect the two because we had to know why we're here we're giving up so many things we love we're giving up the people we love and going to watch live sport or playing with our dog or reading a newspaper everything you love is gone so I had to hook them all into that that common goal and I spent a lot of time and a lot of effort and energy in doing that so every single person could tell you what every other person on the team contributed to the overarching goal and that built not just respect, but a bit of pride in the team. So the accountability wasn't just with me to deliver on this program. The, the accountability was with all of us, the 18 of us to deliver on the program. But I'd spent a lot of effort. It, it didn't happen <laughs> organically and it didn't happen overnight. It took me months of, of constant work to get them hooked onto the overarching goal. Oh yeah. my gosh, I love that. And, and, and when you say respect their choice, do you think there needs to be harmony? Good question. And I, yeah, and that I chose the word Trump very carefully, um, knowing that the, the situation in the US is it's your president. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's, you know, even that the word Trump now has a different connotation. But there, and, and I, I, my publisher said, are you sure you want to use that word? Because it might polarize people. Some will love it and some will hate it. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, but there's no other word that captures right. what I'm trying to say. Right. And they said, what about beats? And I said, well, no, respect doesn't beat harmony. I said, right. harmony is really important. Everyone wants harmony. No one wants to go to work where it's divisive and people are angry and they, they don't like each other. I said, but what I'm suggesting is that when you have harmony over respect, what happens is things go underground. People turn a blind eye to bad behavior. People ignore bullying. People with mental health issues won't put their hand up and say, I'm struggling. And I said, when you have to choose between the two, it's like a, a deck of cards. When you have to choose between the two, you, you choose respect, respect will trump harmony. And I said, they're both really important, but one, if you have to choose, one is more important. And, and I think I think the world would be a lot better place if if more of us could understand that we, we don't have to agree with your political ideals or opinions. I don't have to agree with what sporting team you, you support or what music you listen to. You don't have to convince me. I just respect it. Just, okay, that's your taste. That's your belief. That's your values. That's who you are. I respect that. I'm not going to try and change you to make you be like me. Right. But yeah. I had a completely really different team and I recognized pretty early on actually at our get to know you barbecue the first time we'd ever met that some of my team just would not like each other they had nothing in common they just didn't like each other and they still don't but I so I took that off the table I said I don't expect you'll love each other I don't expect you'll even like each other however mm -hmm. I do expect you will treat each other with respect uh -huh. and that's where it came from that mantra respect trumps harmony I think I used it Oh gosh, at least every day, at least once a day, I would say, well, respect Trump's harmony, go and, go and tell them what you think or respect Trump's harmony. I'm not going to buy into that argument. I'm not going to get involved. You, you sort that out. Right. And, and when you're in a, an, an environment like that, a lot of the research will say, hey, agreeableness and EQ doesn't even matter because you're there. It's like going to war. 
It doesn't yeah. matter if we like each other. We're going into combat together. So shut <laughs> yeah. up and let's all go fight the fight together. But I mean, I, 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 you know, being in the military, I mean, we would have these peacekeeping UN mission. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And yes. Yes. It was a fake um, peace because all you did was say, just don't hit each other. Well, that's not that's not really doing anything. And I mean, I always go back to the Bible. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers, blessed are the peacemakers. Okay. And that means yeah. we respect one another. We're transparent. We, uh, we're, we agree to disagree. You know what I'm saying? And absolutely, I, I, you know, and so, you know, peacemaking is when I may not like you, but I'm going to respect you. And um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's the big breakdown in it that we can't agree to disagree. I'm more stressed out about that than the coronavirus to be honest with you because once you get into that you get into um dictatorships and just totalitarian groupthink and it's it's really it's really quite quite just you know scary it's, but, wouldn't it be you, a better place if we if we got to that what you're talking about got to that point i said all the time in yeah. if you read any kind of online news and you look at the comments and there's so much vitriol That's and people get, yeah. just get angry at each other. And it's like, you don't have to agree with me. I don't have to agree with you. We just have to respect each other. And I, I see it in, in corporate life where, where there is a focus on harmony. So where there's a team that says we're like a big, happy family. We love each other. We have no conflict. Yeah. Th those are the meetings. And I've been in dozens of them. They're the meetings that people will sit in the meeting and they'll nod their heads and they'll smile and they'll say, yes, yes, yes. And then they walk out and they have the meeting after the meeting where they say, that will never work. That's not going to work. And you think, why? what's wrong with the culture that the people can't speak up in a meeting and offer a difference of opinion and, and yeah. respectfully say, right. look, I've got experience. We, we tried that in another team I worked with and it didn't work. Or we tried a product like that that didn't take off because of this reason and have a conflicting view and a difference of opinion, but do it respectfully and, and play the ball, not the person. So you're, you're attacking the ball. You're not attacking the person. You're attacking right. the idea. But I think, yeah, we, we get so caught up in this. It's a um, zero sum game. It's either this or it's this. Well, no, it, it's both. I, I don't have to oh, agree gosh, with you. Yeah. Yeah, that dichotomous black rock. Well, I mean, I mean, you hit you hit the nail on the head. I mean, when you respect someone, what that means is, and Robert Louis Stevenson, I think it was a quote that um, the ability to hold two, the, the test of a first-rate mind is the ability to hold two opposing um, constructs in your brain at the same time and not have your head blow up. Oh, that's the way Tracy said it. In other words, that takes cognitive higher-ordering thinking, okay? Respect means I see it, you see where me, I'm okay with that. But when you get into harmony or feelings, that's pure, that's your reptilian, you know, that's the, yeah. and that's where you get people. And I'm like, that is so lazy because you're not thinking, you're reacting, you're emoting. And in teams, honey, that how you feel seldom has what to do. Yes, we want to be empathetic and, and, and but first of all, we have to, I mean, it just breaks down the whole emotional thing. And then, then we become like feral cats and dogs ripping into each other. Or like you said, we go out of the room and sabotage, uh, put stuff on. I mean, I've seen terrible things happen after you just looked at me and said, I'll do whatever you want. And I've got your back. Oh, here comes the knife right in the back. And it's crazy. Yeah, one of the, it's a great point. And one of the things with no triangles that it took me two months to embed in the culture. And the reason it took so long is I had to coach my team on how to take the emotion out. Exactly what you're saying. How do you take the emotion out of these conversations? And so we developed this little thing. It's called a, a LADAR. It's a language radar. And it's like a sonar ping, that ping of a sonar, you know, ping, ping. 
And they're words like everyone, no one, always, never. And so whenever you hear those words, it's like a little sonar ping going off in your brain. Your brain should stop and go ping. And so my team would never come to me and say, everyone thinks it's a bad idea because ping and I challenge everyone. Oh, not, not Tracy and not Rachel. Okay. So it's not everyone. It's you. Right. And same as always, if you say to someone, you always do something, you, you are always late for work. The minute always is out of your mouth, they'll say, well, last Tuesday, I was 30 minutes early. So they only need to find one example to prove it's not always or same as never. If you say never, they only need one example and then it, they disprove your whole theory. That's when it becomes emotional because it's natural. If someone says to you, you always do something or you never do something, your natural reaction is to find an exception to that. And that's why it becomes emotional. If you can take the the emotion out and deal with facts. So the fact is you're due here at work at 9am. The fact is you arrived at 9.15am. That's a fact. You can't argue with a fact. And so part of the, the really important part for me as a leader and I I, again I'd never anticipated this would be my role I invested heavily in coaching my team on how to have the difficult conversation to take the emotion out and and that's why it took so long to embed no triangles in the culture because we do it's an absolute skill having those conversations and often what happens is we try it once we try it at home with our partners it goes pear-shaped it becomes volatile and, and emotional so you think well I won't I won't raise that topic ever again so Dealing with the facts and taking out the emotion means you can have that conversation and it's not personal. People walk oh. away and it's not personal because you're dealing with facts and, and data. So yeah, it, that was a, another little nifty tool that we uh, we kind of created down there, our language radar. So those radar. were your words. You called them radar. Did, I a mean, radar, and, a language and, radar. This, I mean, I have my trigger words. Uh, somebody will laugh because we all access each other's emails and there's a certain word that if somebody uses... Um, uh, the word is disappoint. Just yeah. to our listeners, please don't send me an email and say something disappointed you because to me that's a, mm, you know, that's a that's one of those yeah. words. To, I, I can't stand that word. You know what I'm saying? It just yeah. like, well, oh, fine then. If I'm such a failure to you, you could just go someplace else kind of thing. But um, go I love somewhere that. else. It is. And I love, I love that you said two months because, you know, they say at least 40 days for something to really start forming a new pattern. So 60 days that it took you with the no triangles and then you just got to, but you know what? I am sure they took that away from them after having that imprinted and embedded in them for a year. That's probably, they came out different people as a result of that because our society just works so against that. You get to comment on people you don't know about things that have no business you talking about and you, and, and just be ugly. And it's like, you know, the triangle's gone crazy. It does. And as the leader, I'd always done the triangles thinking it's just my team. They're venting. They're just letting off steam. They're venting. My job is to listen to it. And now I'm like, oh my goodness, I was complicit in that. I actually, by listening to that, I'm saying, um, and I thought that I was doing the right thing. I thought they just need someone to vent to. Right. And and it's not, it's actually, you are saying it's okay to complain about somebody else behind their back when that is so disrespectful. I mean, whether that person decides to change their behavior or not, that's their choice. But out of respect, they... They need to be consulted first. You need to talk to them first before you go and blab and, and chat to anyone else because that's really disrespectful. So my team, when we did have that plane crash, and I always say this, teams that are built just on harmony, when they're under pressure, when a team who's all you know chipper and happy and we're all this, this facade of harmony, when that team's put under pressure, they will shatter under pressure. They don't have the skills and the resilience to cope with 
with challenge and pressure. My team were brilliant under pressure, but it was never because we all liked each other. It was because we had a bedrock and mm. a foundation of respect. We genuinely respected each person and we respected their contribution and we didn't like necessarily like them. Um, some of them were really great friends, but right. by, by and large, we were just work colleagues who had to live in each other's house, you know, like you're sharing a house with your work colleagues, which is pretty full on. Um, so yeah, and it did take a long time to embed that, but I think a lot of them, I've taken it back now, I've got a, a, an 11 year old son and I'm teaching him no triangles. So no triangles, the other part of it is that answer shopping. So if someone asks you a request and you say no, and then they go around your back or they go over your head, they shop around and they ask that same request of different people until they get the answer that they want. Mm -hmm. And we know why they do it. It works because you've said no, and then they've found someone above you who'll say yes. My son actually gets in more trouble for answer shopping than he does for whatever the original request. So he might say, mum, can I have the iPad? And I'll say, have you asked your father? And he'll say, yes. And I'll say, what did dad say? And he said, oh, well, dad said no. And, and he'll get in trouble for that. I said, well, no Good. triangles, mate. You, you can't go answer shopping. If, you, if one of your parents says no, <clears throat> that's no. So the other part of the no triangles is that answer shopping. And it's rife. It's a political thing that people do to right. get what they want. And, and they do it as kids and they grow into adults and they do it at work. And if you're the leader, it is so disempowering. It is so dysfunctional. You'll never forget it. You'll never get over it if, if that has happened to you. Or if, or if you're in an organization, they allow it to go on. I mean, that jump in the chain. Yeah. And that's where you've got to work for leaders that really respect your, your decision. Well, Tracy, in this time, I agreed to let them. It's like, because I've been in that. When you said disempowered, boy, I've had, I've, I've had that. Yeah. I've probably done it to people too. So I don't want, uh, you know, it, leadership is, is absolute learning process. And I love that you keep saying respect, but, but we, we drill down on respect because it's really all about trust. And without mm -hmm. trust, they're not, they probably didn't feel like they'd even live for a year out there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you got to trust that the right people are going to have the right water. Otherwise you might not, you might drink something or somebody might not keep the facility running. I mean, trust is, is really important in your environment and it's really important in all our environments. It really is. And, and simple things like we have little, um, little quad bikes, a so little four wheeled motorbikes down there. And that's, how we get around because we can't drive a car down there. There's no, no roads. Um, so that's how we get around. Now, if somebody has taken that quad bike out and there's some kind of fault with it, so maybe um, the, the demister isn't working on the, the helmet that you wear and you need to have, it's heated so that it doesn't fog up and you can see where you're going. So if somebody has taken that out and realise, oh, it's, it's fogging up and you can't lift the, the visor, if you lift the visor, you've got, you know, minus 32 degrees Fahrenheit um, temperatures or even more in the wind, wind chill factor hitting you on the head, like that's diabolical. So if, if someone has used that helmet and, and, hasn't, and it's faulty and they have just put it back on the hook and you go out off station on your little bike and you've got your, your helmet on and then suddenly you realise the visor isn't working and you're 20 miles from station before you realise, I mean, that, that's, someone could die. Right. from that. And, and that's just one person who didn't show the leadership of saying, okay, this is faulty. I can't fix it because I'm not the mechanic, but I will, I will bring it to the attention of the mechanics. And meanwhile, I'll put a tag on it to say that it's faulty or I'll place it somewhere out of sight so someone doesn't accidentally pick it up. And all of, all of those things. So we had to trust each other. We had to trust mm -hmm. that the person who's used that equipment before you has returned it in, in great condition and working, working condition and I'm safe because yeah, a mistake like that is deadly, absolutely deadly. 
Absolutely. I love it. Okay. So the last one that we talked about, and you, you have alluded, and you, you, all these things are kind of all threaded through. Funny thing about leadership is it's all kind of threaded. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, but you talked about, uh, you know, having that lofty goal, the three types of groups that went out to Antarctica. And um, you talked about a lofty goal. And the last point my dad brought up was called vision. And his perspective of vision wasn't, you know, you see things that, you know, you're a Steve Jobs or a Mark Zuckerberg or Oprah, you know, but just seeing what needs to be done and doing it, you know, because a lot of people will talk about stuff, but not really ever, you know, put any skin in the games or suit up. Um, how, how did you, how did you set the vision? I mean, you guys had your research that was pretty defined, but, but you talked about the lofty goal you set for people. How else did you keep people on point with the vision or inspire them? Yeah. So the vision for me in winter, particularly in winter when there's nothing, it's, interesting going on it's 24 hours of darkness and there's blizzard and it's boring it's like being in lockdown um for for nine months except you're with with colleagues so you're in lockdown with people that you don't even really know at the time and so the vision for me it was really simple it was how do i create a culture where people will speak up and deal with issues directly because my my big fear was someone exploding with anger so someone getting so frustrated and so built up that they explode with anger because I had no way to deal with that. There was no police force. There's no disciplinary measures. I'm it. I'm it. Mm-hmm. And equally mental health, someone spiraling with depression, you know, someone just stewing on something and getting more and more depressed. And I had, again, I didn't have a psychologist or psychiatrist on, on the team. So I'm it again. So my vision was how do I create this robust, resilient team that, that function at a high level and actually we raise issues and we talk about issues and we deal with them, we sort them, we put them to bed and we move on. And the story that highlights it is one I call the bacon war. And, and people say, is that a metaphor, the bacon war? And I say, no, it was a bacon war. It was a fight about whether bacon should be cooked soft or crispy. And the team actually wanted, three of the team wanted me to call a meeting to decide, should the bacon be soft or crispy? When I got to the bottom of it, I found out that the relationship between these two teams had broken down over the use of a vehicle. And so one team, so that the diesel mechanics and the plumbers was, the plumbers thought the diesel mechanics were deliberately cooking the bacon the opposite way to irritate them. And I realised, wow, this is actually nothing to do with bacon. It's manifested in the bacon, but it's actually they're feeling disrespectful. And this feeling, dis- sorry, disrespected. Mm-hmm. So I started to identify all of these little behaviours that are the thorn in the side of a team and they irritate people. And it's because they're a symptom of a deeper issue and the deeper issue is a lack of respect. And so there were things like, uh, and it's every day, I mean, in lockdown, it's people leaving wet towels on the floor. And I hear it all the time, you know, when you're in lockdown, little things will just drive you nuts. So And people say, oh, it's a wet towel. No, it's not a wet towel. It's disrespectful because it implies my time is more important than your time. It's the same when you're sharing a vehicle or or a car and someone takes it out and they don't put gas in it. They bring it back and it's empty. And you're running late and you jump in that car and then you realise, oh, I need to go and get gas. I need Mm -hmm. to go to the station and get gas. That's disrespectful because what it implies is my time is more important than the next person. Mm -hmm. And I'd always wondered why do these little things drive us crazy? And now I know it's because they're actually the symptom and the deeper issue is the lack of respect. 
So my vision for the team was we need to raise these little things and not sort of flick them off as a small thing, not just say, oh, it's, it's just a little thing. No, is, is it a little thing or is it actually a symptom of a deeper issue that I need to deal with and we all need to deal with? And so that was the vision for the team. I wanted them to speak up and to step up and to deal with stuff as it happened as grown-ups, as professionals, as, as colleagues and move on, put it to bed and move on because I had no capacity or ability to deal with the alternative because I was everything, I was it. It wasn't, there was no one else for nine months and I, I didn't feel like I was skilled enough to deal with um, you know, really significant mental health issues or certainly uh, if someone had a violent episode there's, there's no one there. So yeah, that was the vision. Let's deal with it. Let's sort it. Let's solve the Baker Wars. And I think now's a really good time as, as people are coming out of isolation and returning to workplaces. I think every one of us will think of one little thing that's happening in the team at work. And it might be people who are constantly late for meetings or people who are playing on their phones when you're presenting. There's a whole heap of them and they're really, I've done research on it. It's really funny. They're different all around the world. They're different things in different countries. Um, but they're the same philosophy that they're little things and they irritate people. And I think now for leaders, this is our leadership legacy moment. As we return from isolation and get back to workplaces slowly over the next six to 12 months, I think it's a leadership legacy moment. And as leaders, how we lead our teams for the next period will, will leave a lasting impression for a long time. And I think it's a great opportunity to think about what worked in this team that we really love and will keep, what didn't work. So what are the bacon wars? What are the little things? Let, let's get rid of them. And what are these little things we picked up during isolation, little rituals that we might have had that we'll, we'll retain going forward? And now's the time to draw the line in the sand and reset the values and recalibrate the team and go from this day forward, this is what's going to change and, and yeah, really solve those bacon wars because I think coming out of isolation is going to be really difficult and challenging for mm -hmm. leaders in particular. But now's the time to, to deal. It's a circuit breaker. We can actually deal with these issues now right well, whereas they might have been a crisis yeah you get to reset stuff that, that yeah. may, may have been so entrenched before it never would have it but i love that you took the perspective of vision and said look we already know what we're here to do and that's why when people are like what's your vision i'm like duh i run I, everybody knows my vision okay that it was my dad's vision now it's my vision but i love that you talked about really too vision is really not just focusing on the end goal, um, but getting rid of the stuff that's going to trip you off up en route to the end goal. And that's so important because it always used to baffle me. I'm like, I never really got hung up, I, but, but, the, but the obstacles are what irritated me, you know, because I don't mind charging off I'll pick a vision. I'll have a hundred visions, but I love that you said that um, everybody pretty much knows what they're down there to do and what they're getting paid to do. They signed up for that. And this is it. <laughs> they don't get to all of a sudden go, I'm here to, you know, see if there's aliens on the South pole. I, you, know, you don't get to, you don't get to veer off and mission drift, but there's a lot of things that could prevent people from achieving the end goal. And that, I think that's a brilliant insight, Rachel, of the many brilliant, most of it hanging around with all those penguins. Down there. <laughs> it was necessity. They say uh, necessity is the yes, mother of invention. It and is. it was, it, it was, and it was that self-awareness of reflecting on my own leadership. So when things went oh. wrong and I made a lot of decisions that were wrong, it would have been really easy for me to ascribe that behavior to a cabin fever to say, Oh, that's just, they're, they're suffering cabin fever. But I had to be brutally, um, self-aware of myself and, and almost like on a balcony, standing on a balcony, looking down, watching myself 
and there were times where I had to go, no, that's not cabin fever, that's you. So one time I, I consulted the whole team on a really simple thing. It was about um, the music that was being played and, and someone decided they wanted sport. They wanted to live stream a sporting game and people said, oh no, we play music, we don't play sport. So instead of making a decision, I consulted with all of them. Like, what do you think? What do you reckon? What do you think? And it became the biggest issue to hit Antarctica in 58 years. And I'm scratching my head. I'm going, what, what's going on? And I initially, I said, oh, it's cabin fever. You know, we've been together for six months. They're all gone a bit crazy. It was only through reflecting in my, my journal and having brutal, being brutally self-aware that I realised, hey, that's not cabin fever. That's you. You did that. The reason everyone has an opinion is because you asked everybody their opinion. The reason this has dragged on for five days when you could have sorted it in five minutes is because you you elevated it, you escalated it, you turned it into a much bigger issue than it needed to be because you were too democratic and you're too collaborative. And I'd always thought there was no danger in that. I thought you can't over collaborate, you can't be overly democratic, you can get everyone's opinion. I now know that sometimes it is wrong. Sometimes you're paid to make a decision, make the decision. And if you consult widely with everyone, it slows things down mm -hmm. and it it's like throwing fuel on a fire and it makes yeah. it this big issue that you could have put out when it was tiny. And so, yeah, all of the things I learned were just because I had to, I had no one tapping me on the shoulder saying, Oh, Rachel, you got that wrong. And I had to just sit there and ponder and think, why did that person behave the way they did? And did I have any role in that? Mm. And, and sometimes I did. And sometimes I didn't. So yeah, it was all, all because I had to. <laughs> But that is, and, and, and uh, you know, I'm speaking to a group on trust on Friday and, and you hit on it. The number one thing, we all make mistakes. We all uh, make faux pas or, or lose people's trust or burn our social capital, whatever. But the greatest thing to gain it back is just own your part of it and acknowledge it and, and, and put yourself in place and say, it wasn't my intent. I don't care what your intent was. This is how it landed. So own it. And I mean, that you got that experience out there because boy, it's the funniest, that's the greatest thing is, well, you know, it's everybody else's fault, but my fault kind of thing. So, mm. I mean, how incredible that you were up there and got that, just that you were open to it, that you were humble enough and self-aware enough that you could really let it land on you and say, um, no wonder they hired you. Oh my gosh. I mean. <laughs> it was funny because I, and I had to tell myself that I had many moments of self-doubt, which I think a lot of leaders do. And a lot of times, particularly in the early months where I thought I'm out of my depth and I thought, I don't know about this science and I'm managing technical specialists when I don't have that technical expertise myself. And I'm sure lots of leaders listening will, will have felt that at some time. And what I had to keep saying to myself was they chose me and it was a lengthy selection process that went for over six months. So it included phone interviews and reference checks and then the boot camp. And I had to say, I was actually the 58th expedition. So this team of people and their predecessors have been recruiting for this role for 58 years. Mm -hmm. They know what they're looking for. And I, I had to say, if they chose me with a week, which watching me around the clock for a week, they knew me, there was nowhere to hide. They knew right. my leadership style. And they chose me and I had to use that to give me the confidence to go, they know what they're on about, so you must be able to do this and keep saying, you know, and, and that's, that was probably the, the big lesson I learned was that leadership, well, the two big lessons, and I'll, it's a good place to finish. Um, the two big lessons I learned was leadership skills are transferable, but the mm -hmm. other big lesson I learned was to be an inspiring leader. And I thought to be inspiring was personality. You know, I thought you had to be like Richard Branson. You had to be this big extrovert personality and I'm an introvert. And I thought, well, there's no way I can be inspiring. But my 
performance review was actually conducted by a psychologist who met privately with each of my people and got feedback. So it's brutal. It's third party performance review. She gets the feedback and she gives it to me. And I said, right, what did they tell you? What did they say? And she said, they found you really inspiring. And I said, right, what is that? Is it, is it that I worked 16 hours a day or is it that I managed this plane crash? Right. And she said, no, she said, no. She said, Sharon mentioned that you knew the names and hometown of all 120 people on your station over summer. Uh, Patrick mentioned his son had a school concert and you saw him in the morning and you said, oh, Patrick, did you phone home last night? How did Lachlan's concert go? Oh. Alan mentioned he was on kitchen duty and he's mopping the floors at eight o'clock at night and you came in to get a cup of tea and you put some chairs up to help him out. You didn't speak to him, you just helped him out. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's, that's what they told you. That's what they told you. And, and I'm thinking, I didn't have to work 16-hour days. And what it taught me was that my team didn't rank me as a good leader because I delivered a program on time on budget. Uh, or I maintain the safety of 100, 120 people. They figured that's my job. That's what I was paid for. Mm-hmm. What stood out for them were, the, were these moments. And in the words of the wonderful Mayor Angelou, people don't remember what you say or do. They remember how you make them feel. Right. And it blew me away that if I want to be an inspiring leader, it's not about charisma or personality. If you've got that, then you're really lucky. You know, yeah. oh, Lucky you. But if you're a little bit more introverted, you can still be an inspiring leader because that's what people want. They want to feel valued and they want the moments where you make them feel valued. And it blew me away that that's, that was the number one thing I learned about leadership in 12 months. <laughs> That's brilliant. I mean, that is, that is just, and you know what, when I, when I did my PhD was studying the crisis leader that pulled this, this merger gone south, when the people reflect on leader, that was the same thing. They said it was a female leader, caring, kept her cool, stayed in touch with us, let us know it was going to be okay. And I'm like, that is what, you know, really sticks in people's minds. And absolutely, you you know, solidify that. It blew me away that they didn't, and here I'm doing the typical leadership stuff. So I'm working the long hours. I had this, I had a a roster, I had an Excel, it was an Excel spreadsheet for our rosters, which is the first time anyone had done this in Antarctica. So I had that transparency. So there was none of that squabbling around, oh, that person, you know, because we had to do all the, the hospitality duties. We don't have hospitality workers down there. So things like vacuum the carpet or wash the windows, we all have to take turns doing that. And that's the same for all of the, the nations. Mm-hmm. So to put some transparency around that, rather than just have this whispering that, oh, Tracy's only vacuumed once in the last month and I've done it three times. I had a spreadsheet front and center where everyone could look at it and see exactly. I thought that was brilliant. No, the team didn't even mention it because they figured that was my job. So they mentioned all these little moments and it truly was, they did not remember those things. They didn't, they, they didn't remember what I said or what I did. They remembered how I made them feel. And it was that simple. And it just blew me away that it's, it really is that simple. People don't remember what you say or do. They remember how you make them feel. Well, that is so encourages for leaders that may feel that they're out of their technical element, you know, yeah. that land in something and they're like, I don't even know what these guys are talking about. But, but leadership is something different than that. It, it, it's, it's not that capability because you've got people on your team to go ahead and do that. But it's bringing out Absolutely. the best in them to get that one goal met. Oh, my gosh. Yep. Anything else, Rachel, that you want to share with us? Those are an an incredible last two lessons on top of the other 200 lessons you gave us. Just absolutely brilliant. No, I think think just a shout out to leaders at the moment to to look after each other. And and I I think leadership is in the community. It's in the home and it's in a workplace. And I think for leaders at the moment and, and 
for the next six months, it, it's exhausting to have that poise, particularly with, with young children, if you have young children, and to, to read the headlines around the world and to have that. We don't know how this will end. We, we really don't, but we need to be strong and we need to know people are looking to us for confidence and optimism. And I think just look after each other and find yourself, we get, we've come back to the very start of that loneliness that you were talking about, find a peer, find your person, just one person that you can talk to. And I'm available too. If you want someone that, to talk to, I'm on the other side of the world, so we're in a completely different time zone, but I'm more than happy for people to shoot me a message and I'm here to listen and talk to because I think leaders in particular at the moment, we need to look after each other. Oh, we do. We need to stick. We need to stick together. And that's why we're doing this. And I just thank you for pouring into these leaders. Now, how do people connect with you, Rachel? Get your book, hear more about you, reach out to you to speak or do a virtual presentation. I would love to do some virtual presentations. I've uh, had to set up my own broadcast studio because obviously we can't fly anywhere. But the, the delightful thing is I get to work in, in the United States and Europe because Australia is so far away that I often turn down work internationally just because of the travel. It's three mm -hmm. days of travel for me to get to London. It's 14 hours on a plane just to LA mm -hmm. and then another five hours to the, uh, the East Coast. So doing virtual presentations is great. So yeah, absolutely. Drop me a line. My, my website is just my name, rachelrobertson.com. And you can find me there. The books are there. There's a lot of free material there around implementing no triangles or some uh, 10 steps for difficult conversations. So there's a whole heap of resources there that are available to anyone. So I'd love to hear from people. Absolutely. I'd be thrilled. All right. Well, Rachel, thank you again for your incredible lessons on extreme leadership. All leadership is extreme because we're dealing with people, but what, yeah. I mean, you just really unpacked it in a way that, I mean, you know, you, you can figure it out and thank you for the, the tips. And I look forward to listening to this again and again, and uh, I just can't thank you enough. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You're welcome, Rachel. And to our tremendous leadership listeners out there, thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure and hit subscribe and like, be sure and contact Rachel, follow her, get her book. And thanks so much for listening. Have a tremendous day. Thank you for listening to Tremendous Leadership with Dr. Tracy Jones. Find out more about Dr. Jones at www.tremendousleadership.com. If you've been ignited by something you heard in this episode, let us know by leaving a review for Tremendous Leadership wherever you listen to podcasts or by sending us a message through www.tremendousleadership.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>